Welcome to Live from Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 41, Climate Biology with Fabian Erkamp. I'm excited to share the interview with Fabian because I think it connects to some of the earlier episodes in the podcast, particularly the one with Marcia Bjornerud about timefulness and the importance of understanding the Earth's geological time skills, which also means that we need to have some more knowledge about the Earth's past in our society. And the other one, something that she also mentions, was the biogeochemical cycles, which basically means the interconnectedness between the biological aspect of our Earth, the geological aspect and the chemical aspect. And this topic of climate biology and paleoclimatology, which means the study of the Earth's climate in the past, in the deep time of the Earth, also connects to something that climate deniers often argue, which is that the climate has always been changing. So how do we know that now this is our part and who do we think that we as tiny humans can influence the climate? Climate biology and paleoclimatology has a very good answer to this question. But before we get to to the interview and before I introduce Fabian, I have two public service announcements within Plato's Cave. So the first one is, as you may have noticed, I haven't been publishing episodes on a regular basis the past few months. And I have a good excuse because I've been working on my book about Plato's Allegory of the Cave. And you can order it now if you want, especially if you speak Dutch, because the publication is in Dutch. It's called Hoe Plato je uit je grot sleurt. So how Plato drags you out of your cave. And it's a small book that provides an accessible introduction to Plato's Allegory of the Cave and updates it to our current time in the sense that you can work with this allegory in your everyday life. From the small things like misunderstandings between you and your friends to very big things like the climate crisis. Okay, so this book is in Dutch, but actually this podcast that you're listening to now, it started as a book. So I first wrote the book in English. Then I sold the book to a publisher, but it was a Dutch publisher, so I will first publish it in Dutch. And in the meantime, I didn't have the uh, you know, space in my life to, to work on the book. So I thought, why don't I just interview some people about their interpretation of Plato's allegory of the cave? And well, that's the podcast that you're listening to now. Anyway, if you're interested in this book, you can order the Dutch version it's published by Uitgeverij Noordboek and you can order it through the link in the description. I'm also still working on finding a publisher for the English version. So if you are in publishing, let me know because then I can connect you to my agent. But let's go to Fabian now. Fabian Erkan is a broadly interested climate biologist. Why I wanted to speak with him is because he doesn't shy away from broader discussions about natural sciences, philosophy, engineering and history. And he's interested in the dimension of time because it plays an important role in biology, ecology and climate and in the resulting scientific field, which is called paleoecology. So let's go to Fabian. Hi Fabian, very excited to speak with you. Thank you, Mario. Many young children growing up, they're very interested in space and in, you know, dinosaurs and other things connected to the Earth's past. 
and like what happened with me is that later this interest doesn't really fade but you don't you know you don't pursue it professionally but fortunately now i get to speak to people like you who did manage to make this into their job so uh yeah congratulations on that first of all well that's uh i consider that a nice compliment uh well i was no exception in uh liking space and dinosaurs uh, of course, the early 90s uh, dinosaur craze was fueled by Jurassic Park. And I think all uh, toy stores and uh, other media things that, that you could see as a child uh, were full of dinosaurs back then. And all was printed with, with dinosaur imagery and the, yeah, stuff was everywhere. And for me, it was really amazing. And at the same time, I was already quite interested in space space exploration. So um, the first thing that I wanted to be was a uh, an astronaut, actually. Yeah, and then along those lines, uh, I always appreciated science at some point. I uh, got really into Star Trek also. And uh, I guess my parents also really fueled uh, these interests. So um, that's, for me, that was like... Um, I think you wanted to be. You wanted to be somebody that uh, set the knowledge of humankind a uh, few steps further. And um, yeah, that 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 was a, a, a yeah path to follow. And uh, when it was time to opt for a uh, study for a uh, university, then uh, I decided that biology would be the thing for me. And did you connect this already to the past, or because? A lot. I think most myologists study the present. I guess. Yeah, that's true. Uh, when I started with biology, I was actually quite interested in medical side of things, uh, neurology, behaviorism, and I didn't really consider ecology or even ecology of the past yet. But as a biology student, it's uh, really important to see all kinds of aspects of biology because that is biology. That's the bigger picture. And yeah, there's so many things going on in all these different scales in biology that that's all interconnected. So from the smallest molecular interactions within a cell to the actual motion of the earth, biology connects all of those things and they're all intertwined. So if you study biology, um, doesn't matter what field you end up in, you have to know uh, about everything in biology. So, <laughs> just like philosophy. Well, I, I think biology is a very nice example of a very mature and, and good science in the sense of um, the art, the art of knowing. Right. So that's connected to philosophy, indeed, and. Um, yeah, so it, it also connected to uh, some physics, some math, some some chemistry as well. So um, yeah, I, I just decided, well, biology is a thing for me. Uh, not because I didn't like earth sciences or chemistry or physics, but I thought it would be the best uh, combination of all these things. Right. So then um, at some point, I actually wanted to take this course in... Um, which had a fieldwork in it, which was actually re relatively special already because 
it was one of the only courses that had actual fieldwork in it. And then we went to the island of the Schelling. One of the Dutch islands. And there it struck me how everything was so connected, which I already loved. But um, the teacher, um, the teachers, they showed us who, how um, the microbes in the sand were connected to the tides of the waves and um, the the moon and the, the sun and everything. And that's how the island uh, came to be in the first place because of how plants can grow in bare sand and then with these microbial layers. And then my mind was kind of blown. Wow, I want to do something with this ecology. So, um, and at the same time, there was also some uh, fossil tree branches that were uh, on the beach from the North Sea. So I was, and then the teacher picked one up and said, okay, this is 10,000 years old. And I was like, what? <laughs> um, so that really triggered the dinosaur loving uh, child in me at that point. And um, my love for um, for time and time philosophy in general um, was already present latently at that time. But it, it started growing for, uh, from that point ever since. Um, and for me, ecology doesn't exist without paleoecology or without the dimension of time. At least that's how I always um, explain to my students. The dimension of time is extremely important in especially ecology because things are not the way they are just because it happened to be like that. It, it, it had some sort of um, origin story that is still relevant to the future and to the things that you might want to calculate or want to uh, explore in, in ecology itself. So from ecology, the step to paleoecology for me was kind of uh, a logic one. And then things started rolling. Then um, I joined this group at Utrecht University and stayed there for, for roughly uh, over a decade, actually. Then I did my bachelor thesis there and my uh, master theses and uh, eventually my PhD also came to explore a large part of paleoecological subjects. At that time, the group was actually moved from biology to physical geography. And paleoecology is a branch of science that is connecting the two. So it's kind of between ecology and uh, physical geography. Um, so it's fair enough to place it at either one of these uh, departments in university. But what it meant for me or for us as a group was that there's also a lot of colleagues now that uh, talk about sand and water and earth history and things like that. So as an addition to this paleoecological exploration that we did, we also started to think about all these other processes that aren't necessarily biology, but are things like climate, oceanography, etc. So yeah, that's a nice addition to the whole story of becoming a climate biologist. Yeah, that's quite an interesting path. But so your entry point was biology. Then you connected this to, okay, in order to understand biology, I have to know about time and Paleo, I don't know exactly what it means. I guess it stands for something like deep time, not just the last 
few thousand years, but... If I'm not mistaken, it's it's one of the Greek terms describing old. Okay, old. <laughs> yeah. Archeo is, is another term. Archeo, yeah. We see that in archaeology. Right. So archaeology uh, covers the human past, things that humans left and that fossilized or that uh, somehow uh, are to be found. And paleoecology is everything else. So it's other living fossils, other living remains from the past, but there's no time uh, limit on it. So you can have paleoecology from, let's say, the last century all the way back to the first signs of uh, life on Earth. It's all paleoecology. Sometimes you say paleontology, and then you often specifically mean uh, fossil animals. But it's kind of, I don't know, for me, those two terms are um, highly overlapping. So what is then the, the, I guess, me and most people see the climate and life or biology as two kind of separate things, or maybe... You can say, well, okay, the climate is like environment in which animals or humans live. And of course, can understand that that this environment has a huge influence on if it gets hotter, we have to adapt. If it gets colder, we have to adapt. Um, But does it also work the other way? So can you speak a little bit more? In this sense, you were talking about microbes earlier, so I can understand that microbes are affected by the climate but does it also work the other way that microbes themselves have an effect on the climate the climate is more than biology itself right so we have living things on earth the plants the trees the everything you can see uh, that that is green um, animals of course the fungi and all other microbes but climate is actually the non-living nature so we're talking about temperature, precipitation, humidity, things like wind or um, cloud cover. Those things you can share under um, climate. So seasonality also, things that uh, have to do with the relative position of the earth towards the sun. Um, and those things don't really have anything to do with biological life um a dead planet can also have climate right so mars uh as far as we know uh hosts no life currently and mars has a climate it has wind it has some sort of maybe precipitation it has temperature of course uh there's sunshine and seasons maybe but there's no life so those things are separate and it's uh it's where the interesting part for me begins is where life and uh, climate are intertwined. So the interaction between life and climate, that's why I dubbed for myself the, the term climate biology, which is an existing word, but it's not a widely recognized term for the disciplines between ecology, paleontology, paleoecology, climate science, physical geography, and animal or plant physiology. So very interdisciplinary. It's it's interdisciplinary, but it's so to me it's that's climate biology. And it goes both ways. So biology also hugely influences climate. There's a lot of feedback mechanisms. For example, a current day example to give of of this feedback is that 
uh, rain falls over the Amazon forest about six times before it reaches the other side from the ocean to the uh, Andes mountains. So how does it work? Rain falls uh, somewhere, let's say in Brazil, and then it gets re-evaporated again to the atmosphere. Then it drifts a little bit further, falls down again. And that happens about, let's say, four, five, six, seven times before it hits the Andes mountains, uh, precipitates there for the last time, so to speak. And then um, goes, for example, in the Amazon River and goes back to the sea, to the Atlantic. Um, that's a nice example of how biology is or how life is, is impacting uh, climate in a way. Also, with um, if we're talking again about uh, forests, we're, we're talking about the reflection of the light by forest or actually the absorption of light in this case, uh, which hugely influences how um, how much energy is stored on Earth. Things like uh, the breaking of the wind by a forest, for example, or the, uh, the, the shadow that is cast by, by trees. Those are relatively simple mechanisms and, and happen in, in small timescales uh, today on Earth. But on larger timescales, these interactions also are very important because they, um, yeah, they, they shape the Earth, they, they uh, determine how the Earth reacts in terms of these physical properties that we call climate and interacts with biological properties. Simple thing also, um, the first microorganisms that produced oxygen uh, when first the atmosphere was void of oxygen. And then at some point there were um, microorganisms that um, did this anaerobe um, metabolism. Uh, you might know it if you're a sportsman or, or a runner, for example. Then at some points your legs go into this uh, anaerobe uh, metabolism and it burns without actually using uh, oxygen. Well, the first life forms, the uh, first um, microbes that lived on Earth also did a form of this metabolism. They they lived without oxygen, so they somehow they had this uh, cellular uh, process of um, converting energy to motion and to building things uh, in their cells. When was this? About two and a half billion years ago. Yeah, so two and a half billion years ago this happened. And before that, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. Yeah, so at that point, something evolved in some microbe that said, okay, we can now metabolize in such a way that we excrete oxygen. To the atmosphere. So what happens then is that the oxygen uh, fills the atmosphere for a certain percentage, which is today it's about 20%, if I'm not mistaken. And um, oxygen is a very toxic molecule. It's one of the reasons that we go old, um, because oxygen is so reactive. And that's also why we have this antioxidants that we need in our food to kind of um, 
protect ourselves from this oxygenation. And oxygenation is a fancy word for fire. Fire is a reaction with oxygen. Uh, so you can imagine that when oxygen starts filling the air, um, a lot of species of microbes actually died. So these were microbes that didn't need oxygen to live? Yeah, they didn't need oxygen. They uh, weren't used to oxygen. Yeah, and then other microbes produced oxygen to such an extent that the atmosphere filled with it, which meant a lot of other microbes went extinct. Yeah, everything that couldn't handle oxygen burned off. It literally, that's the definition of burning reaction with oxygen. So that's a, one of the first and one of the strongest examples of biofeedback to to uh, the climate system or to the planetary system, I could say. Um, and you could also say this is one of these mass extinctions that we might cover later, although it's not covered as one of the big mass extinctions, but it's uh, we see it as a part of uh, our evolution, right? So in the beginning, there was no oxygen, then at some point there was oxygen. Yeah, well, that's a good example. There's numerous examples, of course, of how biological life uh, at some point alters things in the earth uh, or in the geography or geology and impacting climate. Yeah, and I guess we're witnessing one today, which, I mean, <laughs> we are also alive and we're also changing the climate. Speaking of which, I told you one of the previous episodes was with Lee McIntyre on disinformation. And I'm, I'm very interested in climate disinformation. I also did an episode about flat earthers before. And mm -hmm. one of the things I said there is that, so one of the reasons why I enjoy speaking with flat earthers, but also with climate deniers, is not so much because I want to try to convince them, but I think it's interesting to speak with people outside of your bubble. And it can also be very educational in the sense that when I spoke with flat earthers, they asked me, questions that I didn't have an answer to. Why can't you see further than this? Or how does refraction work? Or So that's great because they're like questions that I had to go and look, look up. So I had to go and study. And then the next time they would raise something like that, I would be able to answer them. But I would also have learned something. I don't think climate deniers today are much different from flat earthers or people who say the earth is you know only six thousand year old and and yeah all those kind of things and so i try to approach it a little bit in, in the same way although of course climate deniers have a much bigger impact <laughs> one of the questions they they asked me is i think a very or not a, a question it's an argument they make and i think it's an interesting argument uh, that actually could be a question to you because i think we're beyond saying oh the climate isn't changing so I think there are not many people who deny that. But what they then the next thing they usually say is yes, but the climate has always been changing. So this is nothing special. This the 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 age where we are now is nothing special because the climate has always been changing. Well, let's let's start with uh, the thing that I said earlier. Uh, a fool can ask a question that a thousand experts cannot answer. Um, but yeah, it's true. It's true. The climate has always been been changing, right? From a snowball Earth to a lava world to to everything uh, in between, multiple times. Um, and 
Well, nowadays it seems seem to be proven that human inf influence significantly uh, contributes to a changing climate, right? So, but there's threats to the world that do not necessarily involve climate, and there's climate-related threats that are not uh, that are even by experts underestimated. So, it's a difficult field to. What I tell my students is we have to worry about things that are not climate, but are sometimes confused with climate because they're also environmental. So I draw this distinction between environmental issues and climate issues. And I'm, I will continue on that later. Um, so there's this climate discussion, but I think it's important for both sides of this discussion to actually listen in an honest way to the other side. Because we have some uh, so-called climate deniers that are actually not against admitting that there is a changing climate, eh? like you said. For whatever reason, the climate might be changing. It seems to be changing and, and they uh, they don't deny it. But often case, they are against the way that measures are being implemented in an unfair or unjust just way. Uh, we have enough, enough proof of those cases. Uh, on the other hand, we have climate experts or climate propagists who seem willing to even militantly defend their um, their climate findings by demanding any and all climate mitigating measures, blind for unfair or unjust consequences that are uh, sometimes proposed. Um, and then we have parties that on paper, they, they believe or support climate action, but in reality, they don't um, want any climate measure to hit their own agenda. So specific examples of these are, 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 are numerous, of course, cases where climate positive attitude is shown, but only implemented uh, in the disfavor of competitors or voiceless crowds. And and I really, as a climate scientist, I um, really want to make a strong point of actually dealing with these discussions um, and not only with the scientific discussion of, yeah, but, but I'm right, the climate is changing and it might be caused by humans. So um, we need to do things that, that we might not want to do or might regret later or are just unfair or unjust. And I think that this is a, a important thing that's often missing in the um yeah in the general discussion, also in politics. Just to make sure I understand you correctly. So there's three groups. The first group might say, yeah, okay, climate is changing, but that's always changing. And CO2 is not the main factor. And you're saying the reason is that they might not support climate measures, such as, for instance, the energy transition, where we try to reduce uh, CO2 emissions. And the second one are the, are the group of scientists that say, well, the climate is changing. It's because of our CO2 emissions and we have to do everything we can to reduce them at all costs. Um, mm -hmm. And but they might may be uh, blind to issues of, you could say, climate justice, <laughs> who, who is impacted by those measures, right? And the third yeah. one, 
I'm thinking of fossil fuel companies or companies that say, well, yes, climate is changing, very important. And that's why we are going to use, uh, what is what is it? Hydro gas? No? Anyway, they, they say, well, okay, we're going to do it in a way that we can make money of it, or we don't want these other policies that we don't agree with. Yeah, is so we a- have this, uh, this recent example of uh, Schiphol, of course, the national airport. Uh, we finally agreed as a country to uh, uh, maybe do something about some emissions in uh, in this uh, airport. And then it seems that some other parties are being uh, financially or otherwise um, disadvantaged by these decisions. And then there seems to be the call like, okay, uh, we like climate, but we don't like it that much that we want to sacrifice this. And I'm not saying that one of both is the right solution or um, I'm not, I don't want to make a statement on that, but it's more like uh, it's, it's a clear example of agenda politics and it happens um if you if you try to search for it, it happens more than you uh, realize in first case. So uh, it's it's part of the not in my backyard mentality. So um, people that are in favor of climate change policies or mitigation, but but still um, only if it hits their competition or it hits some uh, minorities that don't have a voice or um, Poor people, maybe, who don't even have the means to uh, to deal with it, you know. So um, that's the last group I was trying to describe. Yeah. The second group that I described are maybe the some of the climate scientists, my colleagues, even uh, themselves, who um, who are not always too careful in realizing what they propose in terms of they think i'm right the climate is changing i've seen it in my measurements uh humans might have to do something with it um and now all and any measure that we can think of must be implemented some scientists that are or some advocates as it should say they're not all scientists some advocates of um, extreme climate measures, to me, sometimes they come across as some some anti-humanist movement sometimes. They would rather see zero humans on Earth or something, or um, they do propositions that, if you think them true, amount to really harsh um, consequences for humans on earth or they say there's too much humans on earth which is also a very dangerous statement if you think about it philosophically if you say there's too much humans on earth you basically say uh, i'm one rice grain and in this jar of rice there's too much rice but you're a rice grain yourself so how can you say about other rice grains that they are too much it's a huge um philosophical problem if you state that because who is too much you or people in africa or people in the western world 
for people in Asia, who is too and much. Then, and then connected with the fact that 10% of the Earth population is responsible for more than 50% of uh, climate change. And yeah. the, I think the lower, lower income, 50% is responsible for just a few percent of climate change. Exactly. So especially if, if those advocates say, well, there's too much people on Earth. Yeah. Then I try to um, refute this by saying, well, okay, uh, is there uh, 1,000 African people too much or maybe 10 uh, Western <laughs> European people? You know, the, the distribution of this footprint is widely skewed. So, yeah. no, I don't think that that's an argument at all. I think people should not even mention uh, that there's too many people. Yeah. Um, as long as food is thrown away, there's also more than enough food uh, to feed everybody, and there is a lot of food wasted. That's uh, that's a fact too. Um, so we have to put those things in line first, and we can speak about inefficiency, or we we can uh, maybe increase the, the our food yields. That's all fine, but there's not too much people and. A person is not in a philosophical position to comment on other persons being too much. Future mm -hmm. persons too. So that's a slippery slope that people have to realize. And that also goes in a different degree also for the climate discussion. Um, and that's also a very political subject. So who is the Western world to... Uh, suddenly come up with all kinds of climate measures while the developing world um, cannot develop anymore all of a sudden because we decided to at this point all of a sudden wake up and say okay we we did too much already uh, please back off that's a huge philosophical problem people often don't um, yeah they underestimate how poor their um their position is in terms of uh, debate. And um, I think, and that's a positive mindset that I have, I think a lot of climate activists, they just want to, um, or climate advocates, I should say, not activists, they just want to prove that they are right in the, the scientific way, and they are. right. So I don't question their findings in a scientific way. I question the way they, that um, their findings are used by others. So, okay, CO2 and other greenhouse gases, they amplify the greenhouse effect. That's a fact of logic. And it's been uh, proven many times. So, okay, we have this one thing. CO2 is influencing atmospheric greenhouse gases which in turn keeps more energy on earth instead of being reflected back into space that's the core principle of human caused climate change right so climate is always changing it might even still be bouncing back from the little ice age uh, coincidentally we had this um, industrial revolution which amped uh uh, the CO2 emissions and other greenhouse gases. And we have those two lines going at the same time. So we bounce back from the Little Ice Age and we have the Industrial Revolution 
amplifying these emissions. Um, and now we're overshooting in terms of uh, temperature and greenhouse gas concentrations. Those are uh, facts. And But what are the consequences of these facts? There's some uh, sea level rise, that's temperature influence. There's some um, sea level rise that is influenced by the melting of land ice, not sea ice, because sea ice is already in the sea and that doesn't influence the sea level. Um, and there, that's about most of the effects that CO2 has, actually. So it's temperature in the first place and uh, sea level rise in the second place. Um, of course, of course, there's a lot of things that happen when you elevate temperature, right? So um, I always give this nice example of a polar bear that can survive about, what is it? Almost 50 degrees of temperature fluctuation. It can survive from plus 20 to minus whatever, um, just fine. And in summer, it might be hot and in uh, winter, it might be cold, right? But in the, in the uh, tropical ecosystems, the niches are very small. So we have this case, I think it was in Australia, where at some point there was this heat wave and the tropical rainforest got two degrees warmer than it uh, normally would. And then all these fo fox bats, you know, the huge uh, fliegende honden, fox bats, they drop out of the trees. There's hundreds of them dead, like within a few hours. Sorry to interrupt you, but what do you mean by niche, niches? A niche is a biological term for someone's place and time in the multidimensional world of an ecosystem. So it's like... Um a part of the world where your form of life uh, can live, <laughs> thrive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So especially in tropical ecosystems, these niches are very uh, specific. So for example, if you're a uh, tropical frog, then you might be only awake during a few hours and then only hunt uh, when uh, the sun is at a certain position and uh, only mate when the moon is at a certain position and it's all very specific because for the next half hour there's a completely different kind of frog that has its niche there so uh, the niches are very small yeah so that changes the niche is very small if there's a small change it could already mean that it becomes uninhabitable for this species but for instance a polar bear if it just rises a uh, temperature rises a few degrees by itself that i mean it of course it's a problem if it doesn't have uh, sea ice or something to to hunt on but for the polar bear itself that it's pretty flexible it can it can adapt to different yeah uh, ecological circumstances Exactly. So, of course, uh, I'm not saying that that there is no issue for polar bears and it's all fine because they can survive. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that, that we should be very precise and delicate in what we're calling the effects of climate change. And so the point I'm trying to get to 
it's not to go into a discussion about the influence of climate change on polar bears, which is enormous actually. But the point I'm trying to get to is um, that there's so many more things going on than climate change alone. Yeah. And so I worked uh, in climate science for uh, for over a decade now, actually. And when I learned about the effects of chemical pollution in the soil, which I also briefly worked in, I was actually shocked more than I was ever was in climate science. So I'm not trying to understate my own field, but I think it's an even stronger message then if a climate scientist says we should worry less about climate and much more about these other things. Yeah. So we're talking about... Um, chemical pollution of the soil, of the atmosphere, of the oceans, those things are um, much more um, damaging to nature, to ecology, to wildlife, to whatever, than climate ever could. Are you then connecting to the concept of planetary boundaries, where there's nine boundaries that have been identified, and one of them is climate, but another one is fresh water, I guess, and Another one is biodiversity. That's the same concept that I'm referring to. I don't know these nine boundaries by heart, but there are many dimensions in which you can define yeah, boundaries of what we're able to do with the planet. Yeah, And that's a very human perspective, of course, because defining boundaries implies that we want to go that far that we reach the boundaries. Uh, we actually don't. So it's a very economical and very human perspective to even phrase it like that. I'm not sure if, if my point of pollution, chemical pollution, is on these nine boundaries. There's one boundary which has to do with, I don't know the term, but it is like new, new elements that are being introduced uh, yeah. in the ecosystem, yeah. like uh, as well plastics, but uh, yeah, mm -hmm. all yeah, different that, kinds. That's of what I'm trying to get through, in, in, indeed. So this is what, what uh, future geologists will find, this layer with all these kinds of new materials <laughs> uh, in, the, in the earth that were not there yeah, before humans, before the industrial evolution even. Yeah, so I found the nine boundaries. Um, indeed, one of them, the first one is uh, climate change, and then yeah. there's... Uh, other things that do in themselves have nothing to do with climate. And I think that's a powerful message because a lot of things are um, now connected to all oh, climate this, climate that, climate crisis. Uh, we have to set everything aside for climate. Um, of course, we have to do everything in our power to, in a just way, in a fair way, to even mitigate the smallest things that we do that we uh, in in terms of negative influence on the planet but these other let's say these nine uh, uh these nine boundaries the, the the other eight are also very large problems so if we tomorrow completely ban co2 production then still we have eight huge problems left well <laughs> that's a very it's a very interesting point to think about because so i'm from the side of yeah philosophy and but also communication mm -hmm. so i focus a lot on how to communicate about this and if you compare it to to a while back when we were small children there was the ozone layer problem so this is a specific problem 
that that scientists were able to say, well, there's going to be a hole in the ozone layer and it's a big problem and this is what we need to do. Everybody got around the table and we kind of solved that. Yeah. So, but this is the way we we are used to think, right? Like, what's the problem? Let's analyze it. Let's focus home in on the problem. Uh, what is the diagnosis and what is the treatment? And let's implement the treatment. So, uh, if you come, so it would be one thing if we would say, well, this is what we're doing with uh, climate, but there is more complex. So, with climate, you would say, well, uh, we have the carbon budget. Uh, to stay have a chance to stay under one and a half degrees but it's almost finished so we need to rapidly reduce uh, emissions but we're not even doing that so my communication dilemma at that point is because i know i in my communication i usually i say climate climate crisis for instance but yes i know that it's not just a climate crisis it's a for you could say a climate and ecological crisis some people have called it the poly crisis or the meta crisis even mm -hmm. and then you speak about biodiversity crisis but you can also connect it to yeah <laughs> human crisis like uh, a, a, a just crisis of justice and everything like that but my point is that if we're not even able to do this part of co2 emissions but this is not this like you say there may even be other problems that we need to worry about more mm -hmm. that makes it increasingly difficult for one because now what so in these conversations with uh, climate skeptics the disinformation is always evolving right so it could be one week they have this talking point another week they have another talking point so it could be one week you hear a lot about yeah but the climate has always been changing but one of the one of the things I keep hearing now is like, yeah, but you just focus on CO two, and what about trees? And you're not focusing on trees, mm -hmm. and that's pretty much. It's not exactly what you said, but it's pretty much what you've been saying. Only in those conversations, it's being used to say, well, CO two is not the only factor. So uh, what about deforestation? Mm -hmm. But what they mean is they mean to imply so so we shouldn't take these measures for co2 reduction and then the way they use it is to delay any action but it's also a real world problem because one example is um uh for the, for the energy transition is they're doing a lot of uh, wind mills in the ocean mm -hmm. but these are also disrupting ecosystems there <laughs> exactly that's a dilemma right you can say you can okay this will this will help with emitting less CO2, but at the expense of another of these planetary boundaries. Exactly, yeah. So we have this, this huge focus on climate change. And I say we, but apparently there is some sort of movement that is pushing that or pulling that. And then we're making choices that are um, sometimes only one side of the story. So, for example, the whole electric car thing. Well, you cannot explain me how it's not a fancy toy for people that can afford it, right? Yeah. We we don't have our energy grid uh, ready for electric cars. We don't have our energy production ready for electric cars. Electric cars are great in itself. No comment there. 
but at this point it's a very fast very heavy thing that only wealthy people can afford with tax uh, subsidies yeah so where is the justice in that so it's a lot of people like a whole nation is actually paying so that a few privileged people can have electric car so they can say they're climate positive yeah exactly and what about the the, the majority of the world that doesn't have a car at the moment that are not uh, right yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's there's so many things wrong with it why do electric cars have to be so big if you want, want to be efficient you make a very small electric car it's the same thing with all these uh, electric small scooters of course they don't need to be electric at all because they were very efficient like on a human muscle power yeah. but that's another discussion but but I'm, I'm starting to understand better what you said in the beginning with these three groups because this is a good example of of People who say, yes, we acknowledge that there's a climate crisis. We want to be part of the solution. So we're going to make uh, electric cars. Right. Yeah. And then uh, they, they only see the, the hypothetical benefit of an electric car in terms of, yes, electric car doesn't emit CO2. Well, congratulations. The, the power is emitting CO2. Um, but it's maybe not in your area, but somewhere else. Um, or it might be wind windmills at sea, which are killing birds and, and aquatic life or marine life. Um, so there's a lot of things that, that go all over the place with this whole discussion. And it's not even about is CO2 actually influencing climate, yes or no. It's It's about... It's about something, um, yeah, it, it's it's about taking that fact and running away with it, making your business, making your uh, political case, putting heavier taxes on things that, that pollute more or pollute in quotation marks or um, having a tax benefit on things that somehow are magically free from these pollutions. So it's a very complex matter and it's, um it's not just climate deniers versus climate advocates it's not that's not the discussion it's about people who can make money or profit from uh the narrative and people who are voiceless to do anything about it yeah. and then in between there's scientists that are stating the facts and the stating and and the facts are as they are we we have the facts as they uh, appear from the, the science, the statistics, the findings. Um, and then there's everybody who is doing something with it or is benefiting from it or is not benefiting from it. And I'm not against technological development, right? So even an electric car should be, well, there's early adopters, there's, you know, then it's the mass production, then it's... Yeah. So that's always the case. I'm not naive in that that respect, but... I think you get the point of, um, yeah, the difference between facts and and what we're doing with the facts. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's uh, have you heard of this three horizons approach? Yes. You probably know more about it than than me. Then. <laughs> well, so, I don't. I don't know. Um, I, I was recently introduced with this principle by a colleague of mine, but uh, the idea roughly is uh, that you have a 
most preferable outcome. You have the business as usual outcome and you have some things in between. Yeah. And sometimes it's also good or more efficient to say, well, we're going for, for this middle ground option first before we can transition to the most optimal version. And this is actually part of innovation science. Sometimes you lock out options by choosing one of the other options or you enable a new option because you choose uh, to develop something. So, um, so just before you go on, let me connect it to the, the car example, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. how I understand it, it's like, so the first horizon is keeping the lights on, meaning for instance, uh, because gas prices are, are rising, uh, the government is subsidizing it so that people who cannot afford it can, can drive to their work, but it doesn't really change anything. The second uh, horizon is the electric car. So someone is doing innovation, but it's still kind of in the same paradigm. And the third one is the where you actually want to get, which could be, uh, in this case, shared mobility, reducing uh, the amount of mobility that is necessary. And if you need it, then it is shared and everything like that. So kind of a new paradigm. Yes, but now you're just rephrasing the paradigm that has been told to you. Okay. But what if there's other paradigms, such as... In your story, I didn't hear anything about public transport. Oh, that's what I mean with shared mobility. Well, of course, but I already have a train station uh, next to me. Uh, bus lines are being canceled in smaller communities at uh, the edges of the country. Um, so actually, that would be the, the preferable horizon, the the, 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 yeah. the true solution to, to this mobility problem, right? No, exactly. That's uh, I, I didn't say it right, but that's what I mean in the way that you use more public transport, you have more maybe shared cars if you need it, but uh, you can also think about other other ways such as uh, why do we need to go to, uh, you know, do we need to go to a conference in the United States? Yeah, of uh, course. But, can, yeah. So it's kind of re rethinking human movement, maybe even saying trying to live closer to home and to work closer to home and everything like that. Would be preferable, but then there's the housing market. But let's, okay, let's let's keep it reasonable for yeah. for time's sake and for, uh, for practical reasons. But um, of course, a trip to the USA for a conference, it's it's a niche uh, occurrence, right? It's, it's just this one scientist in how many people who actually do this. Uh, but, but there is a lot of tourism, of course, and we have a... Uh, almost a human right on, on being where we want to be on this yeah. earth, I guess. But but there, that's all, we're getting into quicksand of discussions. That's that's not useful, I think. But what is useful is to um, define these, well, you said three horizons or optimal cases. Uh, we should define those first. We should really, as a human community, um, discuss and philosophize with all of us in a fair way, what do we want to achieve and how can we get there? And if you approach it like that, then you can also keep this, hey, your, your, your nine boundaries, for example, um, 
what you said is there this this nine different problems and if you solve one the other ones are not solved uh so it's very complex well i say i i don't agree with it all being so complex because i see a common root in all these issues and that's um that's human power struggles in the end it's all of these nine planetary boundaries or maybe you can think of 20 more if you want um all of them are all abuse of power because there is everything for everybody there's enough and as long as there's people who are in position to control things they have the power to change things um but they won't because they then they'll they'll lose that power and if you're a uh, CEO of a big company or corporation and you want to have a uh, prosperous future in this comp company, um, you're not going to implement changes that are going to uh, disfavor your company or your private business or your political movement. Um, but if these choices were more democratic, so to speak, or more uh, for the general public to go decide in or for scientists to have a say in or just a, in general a more fair approach to changes then we wouldn't have these decisions that are always somehow uh, not in favor of the public not in favor of nature or climate but are vastly in favor of the company that, that's implementing them do you agree with with this common cause of the of many of these problems? Um, I, well, I I do agree that there there is a common cause. I also think that there there is probably. I I mean that would be good news, right? Because if you have a common cause, then you it means that instead of saying well, there's. What many people are saying as well, okay, there, there are a million different problems. We need a million different strategies to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to do that. But but then you can think about, yeah, but what is the perspective from which we approach them? And what I hear in your uh, answer, you didn't say the word, but I think so what people are saying also in climate movement is saying, well, we have to approach it from a, a climate justice perspective. We have to not just isolate um, uh, these measures, but look at what what effect they have, who who gets to benefit from them, mm -hmm. and everything like that. Um, I also think it's a very big question that maybe I want to speak with you more later about. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I also want to get to the uh, because we're speaking about the present. I want to get to the past as well. <laughs> ah, sure, sure, sure. So um, let's speak about this this uh, part more later. Is that okay for you? Yeah, that's fine. I just All wanted right. to add that I'm not affiliated to any movement, so I don't. I'm not in on their uh, vocabulary, so I'm not aware of of the new, the latest, and uh, the newest terms that that uh, for example, the climate movement with climate justice, for example, yeah. the words they use. I I I I don't know. So. So, sounds like sounds right but sounds uh, right yeah so my short answer to your question is yes yes it is 
very connected to to power and the way power is di- distributed and used and who benefits and who doesn't benefit and just like what you said about uh how you how you realize that biology to understand biology you have to look at the past mm. it's the same with with uh yeah with this topic i think yeah okay well yeah good to hear so i guess one way to segue is that really to go into the science side but one of the things that also comes up in discussions is uh i speak about climate crisis or if i have the <laughs> the bandwidth or the space i say the climate and ecological crisis mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reactions i get is like yeah but crisis is a subjective assessment but my impression is that i use a scientific term and that uh, biologists ecologists uh, geoscientists have a way of operationalizing this concept of crisis by looking back in the past. So, for instance, if we look at uh, the microbes that created the, the the oxygen in the atmosphere, I guess that could be seen as a kind of climate crisis in the sense that the climate drastically changes in a very short amount of time. Okay. Uh, so, so that my question is like, what if? Uh, do you use the term climate and ecological crisis or how do you look at for instance the the meteor that killed the dinosaurs and all these other events in the past okay so you're describing mass extinctions uh that's where you're getting at and crisis to me is a is a word to describe a situation so if I really need to go to the toilet, but there is no toilet, then that's a crisis. Because <laughs> if nothing changes, then I have a problem, right? So that that's a crisis in my vocabulary. So if you, let's say, imagine there's a 20-story building, you're standing next to it, and there's a piano falling out, out of the window, and you you happen to stand under that piano. Is that a crisis or how would you define it? Because if you keep standing there, it's a 20-story building, right? It's quite quite tall. If you keep standing there, then the, the piano meets your face. But if you set three steps to the side, then this crisis is averted. So, yeah, what is crisis? Well, I don't believe that, 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 uh, that there's a crisis because I I'm a positive minded person so I believe that there's ways to to steer away from unavoidable problems so but you wanted to talk about mass extinctions in the past where we actually had crises that uh, couldn't be avoided or just happened um, we define five big mass extinctions they're called the, the big five the one that we talked about, the oxygenation event, somehow is not in this list. I think it has to do with the definition of how life uh, occurs on Earth at that point. But let's not get into the technicals. Big five mass extinction. So we have the first one, the late Ordovician mass extinction. The second one, late Devonian mass extinction. Um, then there's the Perm Trias, um, the, the the boundary between the Permian and the Triassic mass extinction. This is the, the biggest one, actually. Um, 
Then we have the Triassic Jurassic mass extinction. And then the fifth one is the Cretaceous um, tertiary or the Cretaceous uh, paleogene. It's the same. Uh, mass extinction, and that's famous for killing off the dinosaurs. So that's the the famous uh, Yucatan impact crater uh, meteorite that finished off the dinosaurs. And then there's smaller uh, e events where we can recognize, okay, something happened and biodiversity collapses to such a point that we can um, talk about a, a mass extinction. So in these extinction events, um, you could say they're climate related, but yeah. So in my lectures, I try to distinguish between climate and for example, things like, um, yeah, planetary processes like volcanism, tectonics. Uh, actually, I, there was a student in one of my lectures that during the lecture, he came to the conclusion that volcanoes and earthquakes don't have anything to do with climate. I was shocked because for me, that, that's logic and it should be. But then I realized that maybe in the general public, there might be a lot of people that, that see a climate eruption on TV and then they think, ah, oh, uh, I say the a volcanic eruption on TV. Yeah, so there we go already. A volcanic eruption on TV, and then they think, "Oh, it's uh, the climate is going to, to shit." You know, the now we have a new climate thing going on, but it's it has nothing to do with climates, nothing to do with humans. It just happens that that's the the planet is doing that. That's something related to completely different um, mechanisms. Uh, but you mean it doesn't? It's not caused by anything in the climate but it's not caused by climate it, it does it, influence it does, i think one of these mass extinction events were triggered by volcanic eruptions if i'm correct so my only yeah. reference is life on our planet the netflix documentary yeah the new one right yeah. yeah the funny thing is that when this documentary came out it's about i think three weeks ago or a month ago um they came out right after i gave this uh climate a biology lecture and as i watched the, the documentary i was like they copied my lecture <laughs> they this is of course it's a huge field of science and uh, many of these lectures are given all over the world but uh because of the timing you know so i was like okay now now i can say to my students like uh if you like my lecture go watch this documentary right so it basically covered all of the components because so they did a really good job i think they uh so because that's the challenge right in a lecture but also in a documentary is how do you tell the story uh, in a limited mm -hmm. amount of time and i guess the documentary follows this pattern of the mass extinctions but also traces the uh so for instance um it jumps back and forth in time as well by connecting uh, for instance the life forms that came up after life, uh, mass extinction to the ones that we can see now like the mammals or the the birds they did a really good job yeah. in, in in also bringing it to life also visually so is is this what you do is this an approach you take in your lectures as well basically yes i the, the storyline is a bit different of course but i well the storyline i mostly use is to differentiate between climate and other planetary processes 
and then I go uh, through the lines of uh, geological history and I say, okay, what are the things that influence climate? And then I come across tectonics, volcanism, uh, the way continents are situated on the earth, the shape of the continents. Um, for example, if there are all uh, situated at the, at the tropics, then it might be warmer. Or if they're all in the Arctic regions, it might be colder. If it's one big island, then the inlands might be dry because of their, their deserts. If there's a lot of islands, then there might be wetter. So that hugely influences the evolution of life on Earth. So climate, evolution, biodiversity, ecology, they're all intertwined. So that's yeah, that that's what makes storytelling so great in this regard, that, that you can do a lot of nice things back and forth through time, drawing these parallels. And yeah, so uh, the, the, the motions of the Earth around the sun and the position of the Earth around the sun, things like that. Um, yeah, it's great. It's 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 a, it's a fun uh, lecture to to have, and it's very important for biologists, but also for other scientists, I guess, to uh, to be aware of. So I guess the the big question is: so we've had these five major extinction events in the Earth's past. How do you relate them to where we are now? Are we in the sixth major extinction event? Is that something that we can say at all? Because for these other ones, we have the privilege of hindsight, of course, and now we're there. Um, and there are also yeah. many different factors like uh, uh, technology uh, and, and other other factors that are present. So I wonder how, how do you relate these five extinction events to our present time? So one of the main definitions of these mass extinctions is the loss of more than uh, two-thirds of life in terms of biodiversity. So, so in terms of species and not in terms of individual animals. Yeah, so let's say you have uh, 1,000 species on Earth. Uh, it's an imaginary uh, number. And let's say after this event, you only find about 300 back, like kinds of species or family lines. That's, that's a safer way to describe it in terms of uh, deep time. So... You had thousand family lines of, of species in the biological sense. And then after you can still uh, recognize 300 of them, then two thirds of your uh, biodiversity is gone. And that's the extinction event, the mass extinction event. And of course, it is triggered by something catastrophic in a relatively short amount of time. So we're thinking about uh, millions of years in terms of times, uh, time scales. We know that uh, the end of the dinosaurs on the end of the Cretaceous was caused by this uh, massive um, asteroid hitting the Earth. That probably only lasted um, the whole thing. Uh, yeah. It was one catastrophic explosion, uh, all sorts of simultaneous effects. Um, those effects uh, happened within a matter of hours, days, weeks, months, and eventually one or two years without uh, sufficient sunshine. 
So because of all the dust in the atmosphere. Yeah. So because of the cataclysmic dust and uh, everything going on. But there's also effects that happened immediately, of course. But let's say we're talking about two years uh, event, right? So we can agree on two years. But still, that's a very short moment in geological time. The other mass extinctions, they are probably, they have been lasting for maybe 10,000s of years. So we have these... Um, some of the mass extinctions were, were caused by volcanisms and others were caused by global cooling. Uh, but we have no evidence that it happened overnight. Um, some of these processes are relatively slow. Um, so to answer your question, how are we dealing today with our biodiversity in terms of mass extinction? Um, of course, we don't have a crystal ball, so we cannot uh, know what will happen. But humans, in a general sense, they have been causing extinctions already quite a bit. Because if you uh, look at humans, they left Africa at some point, and everywhere they went after exit in uh, Africa, uh, the megafauna dies. And megafauna is definition for large, uh, especially mammals. So... Um, Bisons and elephants. Yeah, so elephants outside of Africa, because the elephants inside of Africa and India, we, we have to take that into account, uh, they were used to humans, to the funny monkeys that we are. Uh, they, they knew, okay, we have to watch out for this uh, other animal. But the animals outside of Africa, they, they were not used to, to us. So when we uh, went to to Europe and Asia, we uh, killed the mammoths, right? So um, in uh, in when we reached the Americas, we um, we killed the giant sloths, for example. So you're yeah. saying one of one factor in that was that they did not maybe see us as predators. That's a that's a hypothesis. Yes, that's interesting. It reminds me of in the documentary. I don't. I always forget the name. But there was uh, so uh, after one of these extinction events, you had this mammal. I think that was mm -hmm. um, the little bald one, right? Yeah, I, I don't know the name of this one, but. They were thriving on Earth because they were one of the few species that survived the catastrophe. So they were just like there for, for a long time. But then you got this predator and it's, I mean, that's one of the highlights of the documentary because you see this predator that emerged, but they were not evolutionarily uh, used to see it as a predator. So uh, basically yeah. it was just what you say, like, uh, yeah, could just eat whatever they wanted. And it was interesting for me in the documentary because first I thought like, oh, this species, this first species of mammals, that's like uh, the humans because, you know, we, we are thriving. We don't have a natural enemy <laughs> except ourselves maybe. But then I thought, no, of course, we are the predator. <laughs> <laughs> plot twist, plot twist. Yeah. So evolution is an arms race. Um, and it happens uh, all the time that... that that uh, a predator species is surprising 
a prey species by a new way of attacking or something. Uh, you you can imagine in in human war if uh, if the first person who ever saw a uh, mounted horse running towards them with a guy on top of it, um, what what must he must he have thought right? Like what is happening now? We're going to lose this. And that's what, what happens in the documentary as well. It just doesn't recognize the danger. Homo sapiens from Africa, everywhere they migrated, they mm -hmm. caused extinction of large animals. Yes. Yeah. That uh, that happens. So the extinction of megafauna outside of Africa is hypothesized to uh, be because of humans. Yeah, so if you you look at the records, you see the first signs of uh, charcoal, so fire. Then you also see the disappearance of these megafauna fossils. Yeah. So what does that tell us if you... So this continued, obviously, about whether we are in an extinction event like one of the big five ones or not? I think the way to think about it is also the reversibility and the changes of the context uh, outside of our doing yeah what i'm trying to get at is it's it's all about definitions and then you can say okay what do we win by defining this we should uh you know in in, in christianity we have this uh saying about stewardship of the earth right mm -hmm. i think that that goes for our, our our guidance should be something like stewardship of the earth why uh, do we have the right to erase a, a lineage of, of biological species? We are also a lineage of biological species. We should be proud to preserve our very distant uh, cousins, um, be it plants or animals or, or whatever. Uh, not only for our personal gain, but also um, just for the philosophical fact that we're just we're only one planet, as far as we know. Um, there might be some very techno-optimist people that, that think that we're going to Mars sometime soon. Um, well, there's no life on Mars, so then we'll be the only ones. And there's so much to learn from the rest of life on Earth. Uh, maybe some medicine to discover or otherwise um, the, the potential of life in this universe to survive other than humans lies in the rest of the biodiversity. So we have this kind of obligation to take care of our younger siblings, so to speak. So um, every species, every lineage lost, it's a huge shame for us to, to have witnessed and caused, I think. So if we did the define it as a mass extinction or or whatever that that's not even relevant we shouldn't we shouldn't do anything that harms nature yeah. in, in a general sense but i guess the, the way it matters and not just about extinction but also about uh, climate change and and uh, change of ecological systems is that uh, we've had a, a period of relative stability in which uh, human civilization came up. So mm -hmm. naturally, because that's all that we remember, we think, well, this is just uh, the way the world is. But now, as far as I can tell from what I've read and people I've spoken with, is that uh, this is changing. So we get 
instability in in many ways but this instability is also kind of you know for us it's new but uh it's common in the earth's past so actually the what 10,000 years or something more of stability relative stability that was more an exception but this stability is now over and then of course i want to know well is this is is this something that's going to to go on and get worse uh, from our perspective right uh and uh what does that look like and is there anything you can say about that from looking at the past or is this also unknown territory from from your perspective um so there's a lot of lot to break down there because first you say there's a lot of has been a lot of stability over the last 10,000 years which is the holocene um yes there has been relative stability uh there has been few there have been few uh cataclysmic events that's true but at the same time it's not not really true because um the things we're experiencing now it's not necessarily uh unheard of in the last 10,000 years of course the maybe the rise in co2 is uh is caused by our modern system of course but um for example now there's floodings in uh, northern france and uh western uh, flanders um but at some point in the like two, 2000 years ago those areas were also marshy and uh with a lot of uh water going on so um it's we've been conquering these things that's what what makes us a human civilization we've been with technology uh fighting to get this stability going on that's the whole point that this fighting against the forces of nature has been defining our struggle as a human species to uh establish ourselves in the way we have now so we've been uh, establishing our civilizations but never forget that also civilizations have their mass extinction right so the bronze age collapse at the end of the bronze age that was also a mass extinction a huge crisis uh uh civilization collapsed from being literate and uh, stratified with all kinds of hierarchy and uh, communication and then all of a sudden it collapsed possibly due to uh, climatic events uh, certainly due to a combination of climatic events and political events and after that literacy was almost um, vanished completely and then we had to build up again after the bronze age so then we are slowly uh, progressing into the iron age so we have been experiencing these kind of uh, ups and downs in human civilizations anyway we don't have we didn't have a stable 10,000 years to evolve we are constantly in in battle with nature nature sometimes wins uh we in the netherlands are famous for conquering parts of the sea of course um so yeah there's a lot lot of examples huh? so we have the watersnoodramp um we created flavorland so there's some wins there's some losses this is 
always being the case. Uh, also, if you take it completely separate from uh, climate change. So what we're doing now, yeah, we should, we're getting aware of it. That's the main point. We're the, and the funny thing is we're the first species that's aware of their damage we're uh, doing to the earth and uh, and other life. So that, that gives us a moral obligation to take care of it. Because if you um, are aware of your faults, you have a moral obligation to deal uh, with it and to do something about it. And that's where the stewardship also comes into play again. So that, that would be my answer. Yeah, that's interesting. I have to think about it more as well. So yeah, that, so uh, actually uh, you were referring to 2000 years ago and Plato wrote his allegory about 2400 years ago. So <clears throat> even since then, there has been some uh, fluctuations and instability and everything like that, right? Certainly, yeah. How do you read Plato's allegory of the cave? Um, so we step uh, step back from uh, from general climate science, I guess. But uh, the allegory of the cave is an intriguing one because it has so many valid interpretations. Uh, one way I look at the allegory is um, the perspective of of reality through this inescapable lens of, of your own consciousness. That's, that's the, for me, it's the core uh, interpretation. Uh, is reality uh, electro, electromagnetism hitting your retina or is it uh, electrochemical signals reaching your brain? What's reality? Uh, additionally, you could, could regard the allegory as a personal view of the social world, of our human understanding of the world. Uh, we are introduced to truths, like uh, mainly through media, like books, internet, or education, or social interactions. Uh, that's a fixed lens you have. And uh, yeah, finally, for me, the allegory can also be regarded as the uh, limit of science and philosophy. Uh, truths are true until proven otherwise. Um, I could tell you a window produces light, but it, that would be true until you take a step outside to see uh, that the sun or a street lantern actually are, are the, the sources of light. So we're constantly breaking down the things that we know in favor of new insights. And for me, that's also a part of um, the allegory. When is something the real world? So that also means that in your field, it could be that we get a completely different perspective on, on uh, the state of science now. Well, the, that's true. That's always true for all science. But the climate of the past is anchored at some very hard to refute observations, of course. So we, if you find a crocodile fossil or palm tree fossil in the Arctic region, it, it means at some point, some sort of tropical conditions prevailed there, right? Mm-hmm. So as with all science, uh, from uh, from a network of clues and hints, uh, fact upon fact can be derived, forming a pyramid of knowledge at which at, at, which at uh, each step is forming the next stone, pushing knowledge pyramid uh, higher and higher. And for me, that part stands solid, right? So you're you're building something that's that's made on a solid base of facts. So, if a puzzle is only 
you, you lay a puzzle out on your table and it's only 10% of the pieces are there. Then it's easy to draw some lines between the, the pieces. But obviously the, the, the chance of error is very high. It's, it's very probable that the lines you draw are not the true lines in the complete picture. Um, so we have to be careful not to draw conclusions from what we see. Um, but the conclusions that are universally true with the data at hand was also admitting that some context might uh, shed different light on the facts in, in the future. So we can certainly be, be, be sure in the things that we can be right about, but we also should uh, leave a door open for new uh, new facts. So for example, the, the crocodiles and palm trees that I just said um, in the Arctic, uh, what at that point, if you knew that the, the, the area of land that you were um, investigating wasn't in the Arctic back then, but it shifted from the equator, for example, then you know that the Arctic wasn't warm, but actually the piece of land used to be in the equator, right? So it it's a hugely oversimplified and exaggerated example, of course, but you get the point of new facts completely changing your paradigm, your your world at that point. Uh, and an actual example might be the that at first they proposed many subspecies of uh, Triceratops, you know, the dinosaur with the uh, three horns. So paleontologists, they found all kinds of Triceratops shapes and sizes and, and they proposed, okay, we have uh, 20 subspecies of uh, Triceratops. Um, well, at one point they found out that the different skulls actually belonged to different phases uh, of uh, Triceratops growing up to, to adult life. So at first they had 20 subspecies of Triceratops and then at some point you have like just a, uh, yeah, the way a Triceratops grows from a small baby Triceratops to a large adult with different size of horns and different shapes of their their skull. So this is an example which I can easily imagine because you find a fossil uh, or pieces of the fossil of a dinosaur and you can put it together and that's, oh, this is what the animal looked like. But then how does that work for the climate? Because if I want to know what was the climate like uh, 2 billion years ago, oxygen, everything are, are right gases in the atmosphere. So how how can you, because this, this is your field as well, right? Like you try to get uh, a sense of not just, uh, I'm just saying randomly 2 billion years ago, but let's say I want to know which uh, animals lived there, which plants lived there, where the land masses were. Okay, I can imagine that, but how... Do you get information about the climate? Is that the, is that the same yeah same degree of certainty or is that a different ball game? It's the same, but it uh, takes place in a way that um, that maybe it's not too visible for um, for non-geologists because you have all these uh, geochemical processes in. Uh, in rocks, in sand, in, in, in the oceans, for example. And some of these chemical uh, compounds can only be formed under certain conditions, right? So that's a oversimplification, but that's the core principle of it. So let's say we have a certain crystal you find, find in, your, uh, in your rock, ah, these beautiful all sorts of crystals. Um, 
And those crystals, they are known because of modern chemistry to be only able to form under certain humidity, temperature, salinity, uh, acidity, pressure, and all these things combined, they give a relatively solid image of under what conditions they uh, they have formed at that time. So it doesn't matter if it's two billion years or two million years or 2,000 years. Uh, those geochemistry-based uh, proxies are quite uh, certain. And of course, there's sometimes, you know, this case of, oh, it was formed not uh, two million years ago, but uh, halfway because of certain... Uh, processes you know so there's always this cluedo game or this uh, csi game going on of what uh, what clues do you link to each other um but that's the short answer i guess yeah so there's it's the same as dinosaur fossils uh but it's a little bit smaller yeah and you 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 were you did your phd on leaves as well right like on uh, ancient leaves Yes, birch leaves. Yeah. What did you find out in about leaves? In how do you say that? Paleo leaves. I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> Paleo leaves. But ancient ancient leaves, I guess. Ancient leaves is is a very nice uh, word to describe it. That sounds uh, poetic to me. So we often use the term uh, subfossil because they're not uh, mineralized yet. Yeah. But they're still uh, they're very well preserved for for ten thousands of years sometimes. So the their the actual leaf uh, material is still there. For the leaves that I looked at during my PhD to solve uh, questions about Arctic climate change, uh, those were subfossil leaves. Yeah. So there's also numerous cases of fossil leaves where it's um, mineralized, but technically my leaves were subfossil. I still use the word fossil leaves because that's a subcategory. But uh, technically, it's sub-fossils. Anyway, so, um, yeah, I looked at uh, hundreds of uh, leaves somewhere uh, relatively young from uh, herbarium, actually. But uh, most were actually from uh, peat deposits. So it, it falls open like a book, the peat. You know, it, it, it's layer upon layer. Each year forms a new layer of peat, and then some leaves fall into the peat bog, and... If you take a, uh, a drilling core, you you yeah you take a piece of uh, of the peat and then you uh, open it like a book, and then there's leaves that are preserved as if it was the leaf from uh, last uh, autumn. And then you can put it under the microscope, see the cells of the leaf, and from these cells, I could calculate the the temperature of that year because the uh year the, the the leaves actually formed in the year it also falls right so it's one year per one leaf per year of course um and then in the cells i could calculate from the size of the cell from the shape of the cell specifically um the temperature and i tested that before with um by using experiments in Greenland, in Finland, and in Poland to check uh, how these leaves react to different kinds of temperatures. So there's some temperature experiments 
going on. Um, and then I could make a mathematical model where I calculated, okay, so th this shape means this kind of temperature and that shape means that kind of temperature. And then you have your paleo thermometer, so to speak. And then you can take new fossil leaves and say, okay, so this needs, this probably has been this kind of temperature. And then you cross-reference that with other studies that have found tree rings or pollen or um, fossilized insect remains that are also, you know, this pyramid of knowledge that I earlier described, you're building on this web of clues of facts that together make this, this image of the past, this paleo uh, climate, this paleo-ecological -eco -e reconstruction that you have. Um, and that, that that's really nice to do, to find these leaves, to hold them in your hand and to actually um, envision, imagine uh, the the ecology, the, the surroundings, the environment of uh, thousands of years ago. I have two. Do you have time for two questions? Yeah, sure. Okay, great. So first one is, I wonder if, because there are all these different ways to to gather information about uh, a certain time period in the Earth's past, right? And I guess you piece them together a little bit like a detective uh, and, and triangulate and, and try to form an image of what what was it like, what was the Earth like. And of course, the Netflix documentary is great because you have all these graphics people that try to draw it and i guess there's also a lot of uh you know stuff that you just don't know how it happened so they look at for instance i mean they they have this scene about how uh, tyrannosaurus rex interact with each other and of course they don't know if that's exactly how they did it but they just yeah with the little kids right the, yeah, the exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they just look at. I mean, that's also great. That the the what the documentary does is there are certain patterns about you know this competition between predators and prey or mm -hmm. mammals, and so it's nice to see these uh, patterns as well. But my question is like, okay, so if we are we are now in two thousand twenty three, uh, and I guess the field is not that old, right? And especially the technology is also evolving very rapidly. You can do things with with computers uh, that that we couldn't do ten years ago, and of course that is likely to increase. Do you think there will be a time when we uh, know pretty much everything about the Earth's past, theoretically, or are there maybe even certain time periods that you think, oh, we we just cannot, by definition, we cannot know anything about that because all the records from that period are lost. I mean, I'm not talking about inventing time travel or something like that, but no, just no, with no. the current instruments where we can only examine rocks and leaves and all these things that we find now. Yeah. And yeah. There's always some things you cannot know. If something happened yesterday, uh, detectives might be busy for uh, 10 years from now to <laughs> that's, try that's to solve point. the murder yeah. case. Uh, that's exactly the same for for uh, paleo history. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things you can know, but there's a lot of things you cannot know. For example, how many documentaries on dinosaurs have the size of the moon, right? Have you ever thought about this, the moon actually being closer to Earth or maybe farther away from Earth? 
but at least different than today, but probably not because it's not in the documentaries. You haven't seen it yet. You might have read about it, but you haven't seen it. So um, there's always these little details that you don't even know if they're relevant or not. And that's what I said earlier. Uh, you never know the full picture if you don't see the full picture. So there's lines you can draw, but you cannot be sure. Uh, and that that's also part of uh, the, the, the philosophy of knowing, right? Um, but to be more precise in answering your question, there are some parts of geological history that have been more degraded than other parts. For example, in in Scandinavia, large part of uh, the geological record have been wiped out by the glaciers that have eroding the have been eroding the the, the layers of of the earth below the glacier. Right. So some things have literally been uh, erased. Or a better example is uh, the parts of the ocean floor that have been reabsorbed by the earth mantle i guess it's the same the same planet that recycle i mean the planet is a good example for us in terms of recycling and up how do you say that upcycling and everything right so there, there's a lot of parts of of uh, the planet that 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 we can uh, still trace back to uh, to the beginning of the planet but most of it has been gone so the farther back you go the smaller your lens gets, that's a certain truth, yeah. But could it be uh, theoretically that, I mean, I understand, oh, of course, yeah, details has another meaning, right? Because if you say a very short time scale and then you're thinking about millions of years, of course. <laughs> mm. But um, the resolution for yeah. let's take, for instance, like the maybe not the dinosaurs because that is very long, but you know, that was like a whole dynasty. Could it be that there has been a dynasty dynasty on Earth that that we just have no idea about, and that maybe later we find out that there has been something like the dinosaurs maybe very long ago? Well, yes and no, because uh, the story of life on Earth has very few hard missing links. So there's not a lot of uh, places in our understanding of how life evolved on earth where we say ah well we don't know how it gets from uh, b to c at this point we don't we have this missing thing uh, there's there's not a lot of those they there are there of course missing links always somewhere but it's not like we don't have a clue what happened between this point and that point there are some events like the cambrian explosion where at this explosion which is the opposite of a mass extinction by the way where you have all of a sudden have all kinds of life and it it radiates. That's another term for it. The biodiversity, biodiversity radiates all kinds of different life forms. Everything's happening. Um, that's the inverse of a mass extinction. So we don't really know what's happening there and we don't have a lot of clues how, how that happened. But... Um, it could very well be that we miss entire parts of our uh, history of life uh, as we have with our own history, right? So, for example, what we call as being the Dark Ages, which is a faulty term, but we we have this term for the Dark Ages. 
Um, we don't really know what happened exactly in the Netherlands between uh, when the Romans left and when we get this uh, Carolingian Empire. So that's roughly 400 years of um, of things we don't exactly know because before the Romans, we know uh, almost literally the price of bread per year. And at the from the Carolingian <laughs> Empire onwards, we start to write down things again and uh, get a grip again. So th there's a lot of uncertainties. What happens between the Frisians, the Franks, the Saxons, uh, all in these, yeah, these these wetlands that we now call the Netherlands. So there's a lot of blind spots, and there's there's a lot of possibilities of. Um, well, I'm not trying to get into extremes like what. Uh, but they also propose like these lost civilizations. I mean, it's possible because you could completely erase uh, a lot of findings. But I think there's a, uh, there's enough blind spots. There's always more blind spots than we could know things in the in the fossil record. Absolutely. Yeah. So this was still part of the first question. <laughs> sorry, I so, forgot your second question. No, 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 I didn't. No, sorry, uh, I said uh, because I asked two questions already, and but I said the second question was part of the first question. Oh, okay. In that anyway, one, yeah. so which means I get to ask you one more question. Let's go. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, just whatever you want to say about that, because one of the things that I find interesting about you is that you you are deep into this climate biology, but you're also interested in philosophy. And um, yeah, just whatever you can say about how how do you use philosophy in your work, or how do do you feel? How do you see the relationship between these two, these two fields? Uh, well, yeah, for me, being a scientist means being a philosopher too. Uh, true science happens on the boundaries of the unknown. That's uh, where it gets very useful to know about knowing. So how to deal with perception, how to deal with the unknown. Uh, in specific case of paleoclimatology, there are many unknowns, whilst the lens you have is very small sometimes. So you have to be sure in, uh, I kind of covered that also just, but um, in what you can assume, what you know, the known knowns, the known unknowns, the unknown unknowns, right? Um, that, that science philosophy, I really like that. I also like other fields of philosophy, like uh, rhetorics or ethics, uh, speci uh, specifically. So, um, for me, being a philosopher is being a scientist, and being a scientist is being a philosopher. Yeah, that that for me that that's really intertwined. Right. So you don't see it as a separate field, but it's just fundamental for uh, yeah. Maybe especially your field where you really have to think about what are the limits of limits of knowledge, what we can know what what is the what are the we talked a little bit about you know okay uh what are the basically ethics what should we do okay with scientific findings what implications do they have yeah because it, it nowadays it's so easy to to form a narrative based on very few facts and and walk away with it run away with it do everything yeah you can with it and, and forgetting um what the actual facts are and as a philosopher, I'm really annoyed by this this behavior and this. I, I just can't stand uh, these unfactual movements. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.